media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. We'll open your Bibles this morning, Mark chapter 14. We'll start there, but we're going to be going mostly through 15, uh, or at least the first 15 verses there as we kind of start into uh, that those last hours of the life of Christ. Uh, we continue as we go through Mark's gospel. Uh, we begin to see the complete injustice of these uh, supposed trials that he faces. And injustice is not something that we really have a stomach for. We really don't like injustice. Uh, but the first thing that we begin to recognize is that we all have a different form of what is just and unjust. We all have a view of what we think is fair or not fair. And we usually use those words. This is fair. This is right. This is not right. This is unfair. And yet it comes down, whether you call it justice and injustice, whether you call it what you've deemed to be fair or not fair, it all kind of comes down to the same thing, that we have this view that is kind of right in our own mind. Uh, Let me give you an example. Let's just say that you're going down the the interstate and you're traveling about, uh, you know, 82 miles an hour, but just keeping up with the flow of traffic. You're not passing anybody. You're not lagging behind anybody. And yet it's posted that it's 65 miles an hour there. And so all of a sudden you're just going with the flow of traffic. You're just right there and have been for miles. And all of a sudden you see the blue light slide up behind you. And he pulls you over. And the officer says, you know, I'm going to give you a ticket. You were going 83, 84. It's posted at 65. What's the first thought? Maybe not the first words that come out of your mind, but what's the first thought that goes through your mind? Everybody else was doing it. I wasn't going faster. I wasn't going slower. Everybody else. Why am I the lucky one that gets to contribute to, you know, the government this morning? Why do I get to the, the ticket? Why didn't everybody else get that? And we, that first response is really how we, it shows us and proves to us that we all have a sense of what is just and fair and unjust and not fair in our own hearts and lives. This desire for justice, I don't think, is not a a pure part of us that came from ourselves, but I really do think that that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God has so many factors, has so many applications to our regular life, but one of those is that we have a sense of what is just. Now, we've totally blown that, (laughs) and we kind of go to our own version of justice, but even that notion that something could be right and something could be wrong, something is just, that makes something else unjust. This comes from the holiness of God. And some of that has just been part of, you know, in our humanity being made in the image of God. The problem is that it has now been tainted because of sin, the fall that we call Adam and Eve. When they left the perfection that God had created them in and they followed their own way. And all of a sudden, because of that sinfulness, they saw things entirely different. Instead of that perfection, now they're imperfect. Instead of sinless, now they're full of sin. Instead of life, now they have death. As I've said many, many times, almost every sermon is always going to come back to Genesis 2 and 3. That's the beginning place of the story that God writes for each of us that is applicable to us today. Well, this blurry line that we now have because of this fallen world of just and unjust, uh, we begin to see how that really plays itself out in the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. We, we get this idea of what should have happened, maybe even could have happened, and, and we find out that it didn't. The gospel accounts from 2,000 years ago of the trials of Jesus, uh, we see that in the gospels. Mark is one of the more brief. Again, Mark is anxious to get to an empty tomb. 
He wants to tell the finish, the last part of the story. He's like, have you ever seen a kid that uh, forgets the punchline or forgets the middle of the joke because they want to get to the punchline? And they just can't wait. And then you're sitting there going, okay, I think that's funny. And if they would have told you the whole story, it would have been really funny, but they can't wait to get to the punchline. Why? Because they so enjoyed the punchline. And so they just kind of spurt it out. Well, that's what Mark is doing. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that he's doing this on his own. He's inspired to write this really fast account because he wants to show us this empty tomb. He wants to show us the victory that comes at the end of the story. But in the meanwhile, he begins to tell us about these different trials that Christ faced. Uh, to catch up on Mark chapter 14, Jesus has now been arrested. He's uh, After he's prayed with his disciples, or I say prayed in the in the balance of, of what should have been with the disciples, and yet they fall asleep time after time, even after warnings. And uh, Jesus continues to pray for them. He continues to pray for you and I. And he prays for us there in the garden. Now he's arrested and he's taken off. And he begins to face six trials. Three of those trials, the first three, were religious leaders. The first one is before Annas, uh, the former high priest. Then he goes to Caiaphas, the current high priest. And then before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the supreme court of the Jewish people. So he goes through those three things. And they're all pretty conclusive of what they want. They want to get rid of Jesus and so they condemn him as guilty. The other three happen after that, and those are uh, kind of uh, the political leaders. They have to go before Pilate. Pilate wants to kind of not take responsibility, so he sends Jesus off to Herod, and then he comes back to Pilate because Herod says, I don't want to get my hands in this. And so what you see is six trials, and every one of them have a form of, if you want to say, something wrong that is happening there. Go to Mark chapter 14, verse 55. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Mark 14, verse 55. And this is going to be one of the first three. This is the Sanhedrin. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But what's the last part of that verse? But they found none, okay? And, and so they have an objective in mind. They've already concluded. Now, do you get to sit on the... Uh, is Andy in here? He may be teaching in the back this morning. Uh, he's our lawyer. And uh, I can promise you, if he knows somebody's on the jury and they've already formed an opinion of guilt or innocence before the trial is even... What happens to that juror? Yeah, yeah, you don't get to be included in the trial, okay? Because you have to kind of be, you know, not this objective. They already have an objective. They want Jesus dead. And so they gather up people that will give testimony of that, but it says they could not find any. But look at verse 56. This is very telling. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they do get a, they find a couple people. And this person says that, and, and this person says this, and another person says that, and, and three different stories, and there's no alignment to these stories. The Bible tells us that. Now, why is that significant? Just because they have a myriad of, of stories here? No, because the Jewish people, and especially the religious leaders, prided themselves, get this, prided themselves of being truth-tellers. They prided themselves that they had a fair and equitable system. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, Part of the law that they uh, had, that God gave them, is that they wouldn't just convict somebody from one witness. 
But they wanted two or three. Deuteronomy 19.15 is an example that we could go back and find other places. But look what the Bible says in the Old Testament prescribed by God. And it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Does that sound pretty straightforward? If you're going to convict somebody, we want at least two. Look at the rest of it. Only... Um, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The Jewish religious leaders took a lot of pride in that. Okay, we want two witnesses. We want three witnesses. And we're not just going to convict somebody, especially a serious crime that would lead to death. We would never do that just on one witness. So they call several witnesses, and what are they doing? They're invading their own laws or God's law for them. They get several witnesses, but the stories don't line up. Can you imagine if it was your son or your daughter that was on trial for something? And the prosecuting attorney brought in three different witnesses, and the three witnesses said three entirely different things. Now, again, it's not you. We're getting even more personal than just you. We're getting your children. Okay, That's as personal as it gets. I mean, you're talking about wanting justice for somebody. We can kind of live with a little bit of a wavering of justice for ourselves. But our kids... Man, justice. And all of a sudden, this prosecuting attorney brings in three different witnesses, four different witnesses, and they all say something different. I mean, if they come back with a guilty verdict, what are you as a parent going to do? You're going to stand up in that court. You're going to be out of order going, look, their stories don't even line up. How can you convict my son, my daughter? See, we all have this sense of justice because we're made in the image of God. And it comes, and it came originally pure, but then it's been tainted with our own perspective because of the fall that we had in the garden. And yet there's some moments of purity where we just want justice to be done. Mark chapter 14, verse 57 and 59 And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Verse 59. Yet even about this, what? Their testimony did not agree. They're they're getting different stories. Do you see what's happening here? In a logical courtroom, in a courtroom that really did say we want multiple witnesses and we want confirmation of their stories, this would have been thrown out. But it wasn't. Why? Because they have an agenda. Now, you and I would never see things like that in our own lives, would we? There's never a time in our life that we get so persuasive of an end result that we're willing to twist no matter what, whatever it takes to kind of get to that end result. We all have that within us. We're willing to even be kind of unjust, if you want to call it that, in order to get to the desired end. In a way, guys, we do it all the time. Now, that's not my job this morning for us, for me to just put my thumb on us and, and us really feel terrible about ourselves. And, and yet, one of the things that we said last week, one of the greatest treasures that God has given us by His Spirit is that we see our own sinfulness. Because he has an answer to that sinfulness. If he just showed us our sinfulness and there was no godly answer, if there was no way out of that, then that would be the saddest of all stories. And yet we have the good news because we have found out some bad news about ourselves. 
And so this morning we begin to see that even in the life of Christ, we see what looks like bad news, and, and yet God's going to turn it into good news. He's going to use even this. Now, one of the things that the religious leaders couldn't do, even though they had their design of how they wanted all this to end, they couldn't uh, take somebody's life. They, they needed the Roman government to do that, and that's why they send uh, Jesus off to the Roman authorities, the government, in order to kind of get the conviction that could lead to a crucifixion. They could convict Christ, but they could not condemn Christ to crucifixion. The Roman authorities had that power and that ability. And so Mark chapter 15 uh, ends with the conclusion, or begins with the conclusion of the Sanhedrin trial, and now opens up with this person who's become pretty much famous, Pilate, who would not have been known by you and I today had it not been for this biblical story, because Pilate really didn't do anything of significance. When I was in Israel, there's this one little rock, and it mentions Pilate's name, but even that is just kind of a mention of his name. It really is no significance. The guy didn't do anything of significance apart from this story. But look what it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered to, and delivered him over to Pilate. We've concluded our business. This is what we found. Guilty as charged. And now to carry out this crucifixion, this death, we need the arm and the power and the authority of the Roman government. And so they do that. The hated enemies that we've seen time and time again of the religious leaders, the Roman authorities, they hate each other. And yet they become bedfellows. They become part of this similar plot there. Why? Because it was a necessary means to the end. In fact, we're told that Pilate and Herod did not like each other whatsoever. Herod kind of, he's a Jewish guy and he has this uh, uh, authority because uh, it's been given to him and he has this Jewish influence. But Pilate doesn't like him. He, you know, this, he, he's from Rome. He doesn't like the Jewish people. And so the Bible tells us that they didn't like one another. But look what Luke tells us. Luke gives us a little bit more information. Luke 23, 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. It's an amazing what happens when you have a desired end. All of a sudden, somebody who was foe now becomes friend. Somebody who was uh, an enemy is an ally. For what purpose? Why? Because all of a sudden, they, they found out, this person's really nice. No, because they have a desired end. This is our problem, guys. This is the challenge that you and I face. That even though made in the image of God, we have this threshold of this knowledge of just and unjust. We're tainted because of our own humanity and this fallenness. And because of our sin, all of a sudden we begin kind of putting little spins. And you and I are just like the ones here that oftentimes we have a desired end and so we kind of twist the things, maybe even become friendly with somebody that was before a foe for one purpose, to get the means to the end. Do you think that we are capable of that? And we've probably lived that out to some degree. I think people have always wondered, Pastor, I wonder where would I have been in that crowd? Would I have been there on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna? Or would I would have been there the, the, you know, the following days, crucify him, crucify him? 
I mean, for the most part, we know that that's probably two separate crowds. There's probably not people that just kind of twist it on there. If you do your research, you'll find out that that's, you know, some of them could have been duplicates and they could have been uh, at both of those. But a lot of those were two different crowds. And, And yet what we find there is this general consensus of the people. In one moment, yelling out, Hosanna, this is the Christ, the Messiah of God. And then a week later, crucify him. Where would you have been? As much as I can tell, because this is in me, I would have maybe been there in that Hosanna crowd. Because there's a part of me that would have recognized me, and this is just the blessing of God. And yet, I think I would have been part of that crucifying crowd, because I know that I see that part of me too. Do you feel that constraint? Do you feel that struggle within your own heart and your own mind sometimes? There's a part of you that really does love Jesus. I mean, do you love Jesus? Do do you love yourself? And sometimes that's going to line up, guys. And sometimes it's going to put you at conflict. Sometimes it's going to be that God has called you to the very thing and the biggest blessing and the greatest thing that you could do with your life is just following this blessing and this call of God, even when it's sacrificial in nature. But there's going to be other times that your own selfishness, my own desire, my own discerned end of what is best leads me down a path that really doesn't reflect that much of just, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's much more of that crucify him, crucify him. Do you understand? Are you tracking with me? Do you understand that we have that complexity within our own hearts? Even as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning and you have truly trusted the finished work of Christ for your salvation to make you right with a holy God, if you truly have trusted that for your salvation, even though you now have peace with God, a holy God, because of that finished work, We're still contending in this world, in this time, with some of the old man, the old flesh. And that's why that contention goes. Well, that's what happened here. Herod and Pilate, they become buds that day. Why? Because Herod just wants to to be gone from him. Pilate, they're, they're working together. In Mark chapter 15, verse 2, Pilate begins an interrogation phase of the proceedings. And Now, Roman trials were made up of four different parts. The first one was the accusation, the charge. The Sanhedrin have already brought that. He's guilty of these things. And the major one being that he considers himself the king. Well, you can imagine how that flew with the Roman authorities. No, there's one king, he's Caesar. So we don't need an uprising of somebody else considering that he's the king. So they bring the accusation, and now he begins the interrogation. The third part would be the defense, which they really did not allow. Uh, and then the verdict. In this accusation part, Christ has already become, made, um, uh, he's received that from the religious leaders. So look at the interrogation that happens in verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? See, that's kind of reflecting the accusation. They say that you claim to be the king. Are you the king? Are, are you kind of going against Caesar and the authority here? Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. We're going to see that Christ is amazingly silent through most of the six trials, just as prophesied back in Isaiah. 
When he does speak, I always want you to notice what he speaks. He's not speaking in defense of himself. He's clearing very much God's call upon his life, his purpose and his mission. He's not sitting there, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. No, every time that we see that Christ does open his mouth in these six trials, it's always a confirmation of the call that he's pronounced his whole ministry. And that was pronounced even in the Old Testament. And so here he is, this lamb before the slaughter, the sheep before the shearers. And he doesn't open his mouth, just as it said in Isaiah 53, 7. And Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds basically with a yes. You you say that. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus' response was one to clarify his kingdom, not so much that he's trying to defend himself. Again, this is where we use the parallel of all the Gospels and the stories together to kind of give us the full story. Look at John 1836. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now look at that statement. Is Jesus defending himself or defining himself? Think about the arguments that we have. Any husband's wives ever have discussions? I mean, we don't have fights. We don't have arguments, but we have some intense discussions every once in a while. How easy is it to go from defining yourself to defending yourself? Does that ever happen in your human nature? Instead of staying on target, defining with clarity, all of a sudden you get, anybody, does that ever happen to anybody? And yet, what does Jesus do? At the time that he could have easily defend, you know, defended himself and got all kind of like, no, no, man, this is so false. They're, they couldn't even get the people to agree on what the testimony was. He doesn't defend himself. He further defines himself. I've always thought it was kind of strange that at one point in this conversation, the pilot goes, do you know not what authority I have? I mean, I just, there's so much me in me that if I was Jesus, just a lightning bolt, just really, really kind of close. Not, you know, not deathly, but maybe a little debilitating for just a second, just to say, and and you were saying, Pilate? (laughs) I mean, that's what Bobby would do. That's maybe what you would do. Why? Because instead of defining ourselves in Christ and the mission that God has placed upon us, we defend ourselves. But Jesus doesn't. Most of the time he's silent through all these different trials. The only time he does open his mouth is only to define himself in the mission that God has sent and his Father has sent him on. Look at verse uh, 37 of John 18. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Pilate, I, I'm going to agree with you because that is why I'm here. I, I am here. I am the king of the Jews. You, you say that, but I want you to know that it's not, I'm not saying this out of defense, but that is how my life is defined. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. I've come to be a servant to those that, that would not serve me. But here's where the dilemma starts in the heart of mind of Pilate. That even though he is fallen, he's a sinner just like the rest of us, 
was Pilate made in the image of God? Is there a little part of Pilate, maybe just a little bit of Pilate, that recognizes when something's going kind of wrong and you kind of have that conscience inside you? Even if you're not of the elect, even if you're not a Christian, do you still have a conscience? Yeah, and there's this part of you that God has put in you in the image of God that still kind of knows right and wrong. And Pilate has a little bit of that. And so he begins to have this dilemma. The religious leaders have come, and in verse 3 it says that they begin to accuse him of many things. I think this is happening because they see Pilate kind of wondering, and, and maybe the, the, the wheels turning in Pilate's head going, I just don't see the evidence. I don't see this. This guy seems pretty good. And so they start, in verse 3, they start giving more evidence. They start just claiming more claims against Christ. All leading up to verse 4, look what it says. And Pilate asked him, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? I mean, verse 3, they're yelling out all these different charges. He did this, he did this, he did this. And what is Pilate's question, to use kind of the, the words that we're using today? Aren't you going to defend yourself? This is the opportunity. If you want to defend yourself, this is the opportunity, Jesus. And he doesn't defend himself, guys. He defines himself. The very nature that I don't have. I mean, you put me in accusation. I mean, again, I'm going 83. I get pulled over. Everybody was going over three. What's the first thing that, that impulse that you're going to say to that nice officer that just pulled you over? Everybody else was going just as fast. Instead of defining yourself, yes, I'm a speed violator. I was going 83 and a 65. I admit that, and this is true, and the ticket that you gave me, this donation that I will make, is, is really fair. This is really fair. Now, instead of defining truth, we defend ourselves. But what does Jesus do? You say that I'm the king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Pilate asked him again, aren't you, aren't you going to bring some kind of an answer to these charges? Folks, this is really, really important. The only statements that he makes is defining further God's call upon his life. Pilate goes, are you this Christ, the, the son of the blessed? I, I am, I am. Before Pilate, Jesus does this same thing. Because if we go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 61, 72, that was the question of the high priest. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And, and look in there, verse 61, 62, back in verse uh, chapter 14. What does Jesus say? I am. Yeah, you just defined me. That's who I am. And I always love that he used that phrase that really is kind of the identity of God in the Old Testament, I am. So here we go. Mark chapter 15, verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was... Can you imagine, would you have been amazed if you were in that crowd? That when the natural instinct is to defend ourselves, especially when it's unjust, that Christ would be defining himself, and then silent. 
Enough where Pilate said, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. This is unusual. This is not the way that usually things go. I've asked him time and again, will you defend yourself? Give me something against these charges. Because somewhere in this made-in-the-image Pilate knows a right from wrong. He knows a little bit about just and unjust. He knows what is pure and truthful and what is false and wicked. And in this wrestling match in his mind and his heart, are you not going to do this? And when he sees that Jesus does not defend himself, he is amazed. Again, the Gospel of Mark doesn't give us all the details. This, this is where Pilate says, okay, maybe there's another way out of this. And he comes and he says, I'll send it to Herod, my new buddy. Luke chapter 23, verse 6 and 7. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. That's kind of convenient, isn't it? Man, I don't want to make a ruling on this case, so man, can I find another circuit judge <laughs> and find that, okay, you're in this jurisdiction, he's a Galilean, you go to Herod. Well, long story short, Herod questions Jesus at length and mocks him as a king. He puts on this royal robe, robe on Christ as a mockery that you're not really the king. And then he sends him back to Pilate for the final trial. And so it's here this dilemma facing Pilate about the decision. Do I release him? Because I can't find fault in him. Everything within me, even in my wicked mind, my fallen mind, I can see that this man hasn't done anything. This man is innocent. And yet, here's the persuasion of the people. Pilate is caught in the confusion of his own mind. I shared with you so many times, guys. Do y'all identify with the confusion of the high calling of Christ and yet your fallenness? Prone to wander Oh, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. One of my favorite hymns and one of my favorite lines. Because I'm going, somebody else feels like me. <laughs> somebody else knows that there's a wrestling match going on every day between this high call of Christ and my own desires. And it's happening in Pilate, I believe. He tries to get rid of him. He tries to say, okay, there's nothing here. He says, okay, go to Herod. That doesn't work. And yet there's one more thing that he might do. They had um, uh, kind of a, a custom that was like our presidential pardons and uh, where you could release somebody during this time of the Passover. And so here's what he throws out, verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. Verse 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Barabbas was probably what we call a zealot, often known as a dagger man. They would actually carry a dagger, and if they got close enough to Roman authority, they would come and they would kill them, take one for the team. And yet Pilate says, man, man, we'll put put him back out there. He's a murderer. Verse 9, And he answered them saying, this third question. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Do you you want Jesus? Or do you want Barabbas? This man that I can't find any evidence of true guiltiness or anything that he's done wrong, or this man that we know is a convicted killer. He's a murderer. And what does the crowd cry out? 
give us Barabbas. Now here's the question, guys. A question to ponder. We, we don't know. question to ponder. Where are you at in this story? A, 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 a weeping consultor of, of Christ. Oh, this is so unfair. This is so unjust. He's, he's the only one of God. Or is there this part of us that really would have been Barabbas? Give us Barabbas. I mean, I don't know that we conclude that one way or the other, but I do know this, by my own life experiences, as much as I understand this high calling of Christ upon my life, and he truly, by the very Spirit of God, has given me a thirst and a desire to do that, I do know that there's this old man in contention for that every single day. Do you agree? Do you kind of feel that pain? How wonderful the high calling of Christ. And yet this contention... Jesus or Barabbas? God or me? Who who I'm going to serve this day? Once again, Pilate was going to be amazed. The crowd cried out, Barabbas. Verse 11, And the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Folks, don't lose sight what happens here. In many ways, this is like the insult of insults to the holiness of Christ. And yet the reality of this picture, please understand this, is that here the guilty is being pardoned and the innocent is being killed. Do not miss this. The just gets what we would call injustice. The unjust doesn't even get Justly what he deserves. Do not miss this. This is the mission of Christ. This is the love of our Father. That me and my sin would not get what I deserve, but that he's placed it on his Holy One, the perfection of Christ. So that my guilt is pardoned while the innocent is killed. This is our story. If you're a Christian this morning, if God has opened your eyes to your sinfulness and he's shown you the beauty of, of, of the Savior and you have trusted that Savior for your redemption before a holy God, this is our story. Is there anything just about this? This is where we could have uh, a thousand hour uh, talk. On the human side, this is like the greatest injustice ever. <laughs> that the guilty would be pardoned and that the innocent would be, you know, would, would die a death. I mean, every, every thing about that is like unjust, unjust, unjust. And yet in the beauty of the gospel, the only way that you and I could ever have relationship with the Holy God is if this took place in the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5.21, this great exchange, all of my sins placed on Christ and all of his righteousness placed on me. So in one way we could say this is the most unjust moment in all of human history. But I want you to know theologically it is the most just moment 
in all of human history. And who gets to benefit from the justice of God's wrath against sin being put on somebody besides you who is deserving of that sin? You and I are the recipients of this grace. Does that make sense? I mean, I said yes is a no because that's the right answer. The yes is a no. It makes no human sense, and yet this is the grace of God. This is the beauty of the gospel, that God would do this for us. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Wow, that begins to sound like me. Release for them from, uh, release for them Bar, uh, uh, Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Mark fifteen twelve is probably one of the most pertinent questions out of this whole entire passage. But look what Pilate asked him. So go back to verse twelve, and Pilate said to them, "Then what shall I do with this man that you call the King of the Jews?" Do you realize that every one of us will answer that in some capacity? But what will you do with this man that said that he was the Savior of the world? He says that he was the Messiah. When they asked him back in chapter 14, is this who you are? I am. This is the declaration that Jesus makes about himself, not to defend himself, but to define himself. And he makes this, and now Pilate has to say, what do I do with this man? What a relevant question for you and I today. What do we do with this man? By the grace of God, he opened, God opened up my eyes to show me that this was the Savior. And to, just to come in confession to him, thank you for saving me. Thank you for that you would take my sins upon you. Thank you for that you would show me grace, that justice could be done, so that God is holy. He's not looking the other way when it comes to sin. No, he has full wrath on sin. That wrath just happens to be placed on Jesus Christ. The question that Pilate asks is the question that you and I perhaps have asked in our life. And if not, then what a, what a great morning to ask that question. What do I do with this man? What do I do with this man? where we face our own dilemma, the reality of our own injustices, our own sinfulness. And like Pilate, we can dismiss it. We can try to avoid it and pass it on. Or we can acknowledge the truth and we can finish the story and find out that this very one who was willing to die for us did go to the grave and had the full punishment of God, the whole wrath of God placed upon him. And on the third day rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. That's the rest of the story. And that's the very opportunity that God gives you this day. As he would open your eyes to our own sinfulness. As we would begin to see that the unjust that deserves death is given a pardon. And and the just one is willing to die as a sacrificial lamb. When God gives you understanding of that and you're part of that story, not this story, You weren't there 2,000 years ago. We can play all we want to and say, I wonder where I would have been. But we're here today. And yet, isn't the question the same? What are you going to do with this man? What are you going to do with this gift? Do you want to go down and say, well, but everybody else was going 85 too. 
Everybody else was sinning. In fact, I was like the last of all those 85 mile an hour people. I was actually going slower than the rest of them. Yeah, that's why I caught you. (laughs) That's why I picked you. You were in the end of the line. What a gracious gift. What a wonderful father. What a majestic Messiah. Even though Pilate, this man, we said, man, he blew it. He did everything wrong. And yet in that amazement, he, he knew enough of uh, being made in the image of God that he was amazed at this Christ. And I pray this morning that you are amazed at this beautiful Christ. And I pray that this morning that you would understand, if you've already trusted Christ's work, that you just go, okay, thank you, God. Thank you that I was unjust. And yet you justly have placed all of my sin on Christ. So that when I get to heaven, you don't have to turn the other way and say, okay, I kind of forgot those things or ignored those things. No, that you have already dealt with them and you've placed them on your son. And the price has been paid. That's the joy of the gospel. That's why the good news is really good news. But it's not good news unless we understand the bad news and the challenge that's there within every one of us. For our reflection song today, we're going to sing the song that we sing, uh, the second one that we sing today about resting place, this resting in the cross and leading us daily to the cross. And we're going to sing that because that's the action that we take this day. That's what we can do. Okay, God, you're leading me back to the cross. This event happened 2,000 years ago, but today, October 24th, 2021, you lead me back to the cross because this is the answer. You, You lead me back to an empty tomb because this is our victory. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, I thank you for this story. And Father, we always ponder, what would, what would we have done? We would have been the best, this persuasion or that persuasion. And Father, I, we can play those gymnastic mental games all we want. The reality is today, October 24th, 2021, what are we going to do with this man? And Father, if you have opened our eyes to our own sinfulness and our need, And yet you've shown us the sufficiency of your son and his saving work. Father, I pray that this day that we would just realize that this is the very power within us. That those that were unjust could be made just before a holy God. And that we would be amazed in all of you today. And yet, Father, as we wrestle with our own sinfulness, even now, contending with the old man, that, Father, that we would run daily to the cross that we would not come to some religious kind of morality, even though we are called to be moral people. We wouldn't look to find an inner strength of us just becoming a better version of our old self. No, Father, take us to the cross where the price was paid, the empty tomb that sealed the victory. And let our, let's live our lives there, Father. We love you and we thank you. So we pray all these things in the hope of Christ, in the reality of Christ, and in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online 
at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.